0: Hello and welcome back to Uncut. This is the podcast about how to avoid surgery and live an active, healthy life. I'm your podcast host, Dr. Tom Padilla, and today's episode is a little bit different than what we normally do. I uh, was interviewed over on the Ethos Athletes Podcast with Dr. Matthew Hernandez and Dr. Morgan Massingale. They are regenerative medicine specialists who specialize in sports medicine here in the Scottsdale, Phoenix area. I work quite closely with them on a lot of different patients when it comes to people who need regenerative medicine to stop further cartilage damage, stop tissue damage, heal tissue damage that's already been done to an extent where physical therapy is uh, helpful but not able to get it all the way done. I'm excited to bring to you an interview where Dr. Matt interviewed both Dr. Morgan Massingale and myself. She is a spine specialist, had a two-year residency. You'll learn more details about her in the show, but sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy this interview where Dr. Morgan and I go back and forth on the best and gold standard treatments for chronic low back pain. These are treatments that, in my opinion, hands down, need to be tried before surgery. You'll hear why in the show. I'm excited to bring this to you, and if you do love Dr. Matt's interview style, I highly encourage you to go out and check out the Ethos Athletes podcast. You'll find he has a lot of great content over there, as well as having some interviews of both myself and uh, my other physical therapists who work at the Doctors of Physical Therapy here in Scottsdale. So I hope you enjoy the show afterwards. If you'd like to rate it, uh, like it, share it with a friend, um, feel free to do so. And uh, thanks for tuning in.
1: You're listening to the Ethos Athletes Podcast, where we believe that your health is the number one resource you need to accomplish your dreams. My name is Dr. Matthew Hernandez, and I'm a physician dedicated to helping my patients maintain their active lifestyle and continue doing what they love. I'm sitting down with other experts so that we can provide our listeners with the knowledge they need to improve their health and live their best life. Hey, everyone, this is Dr. Matthew Hernandez, and you're listening to the Ethos Athletes podcast, where we provide resources to help you stay active. We're going to be starting a new series on low back pain. And for this particular series, we're going to be diving into common misconceptions with low back pain and then breaking down the cause and effect of low back pain as a whole and giving you a better understanding of how you can go about approaching it and getting it treated. For this particular series, we brought on two special guests. Dr. Tom Padilla from the Doctors of Physical Therapy. Hey. And Dr. Morgan Massengel, who is the newest doctor at Ethos Integrative Medicine, where she specializes in spinal health. Hi. In this very first episode, we're going to be talking about common misconceptions that we as providers hear when it comes to low back pain. Not only break down these misconceptions, but kind of give you a reason why that these misconceptions aren't always true and some things that you should be asking uh, when you hear these particular myths. Before we get started, Dr. Morgan is a a new guest to our podcast as a whole. So can you give us a little bit of your background, your training in spinal care?
2: Sure. So I came to naturopathic medicine as a second career. I actually started uh, as a youngin in the uh, clinical research industry, and I worked in the orthopedic field. So I have a lot of experience with pre- and post-surgical pain management as, um, as a background there. A lot of my experience there led me to naturopathic school in a variety of ways. As a student, I really fell in love with regenerative medicine. Um, they kind of make a joke that you go into medicine to treat yourself or treat someone you love, and uh, definitely the case for me. So I ended up doing a two-year residency after medical school uh, at the Neil Reardon Center for Regenerative Medicine under Dr. Klee Bethel, really studying image-guided um, spinal injections. So that's what I spent two years of my life dedicated to uh, learning all about, and I'm really excited to bring that here to Ethos.
1: Really excited to have you here. Uh, Dr. Massingill is one of two residents that have completed the residency training and this uh, very specialized training uh, in our profession. So she's one of two doctors who have completed this. And so you know, we're definitely happy to have her as part of our team here. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Tom, Dr. Tom is the owner of the Doctors of Physical Therapy. Dr. Tom, why don't you give us a little bit about your background for our new listeners?
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me back, Dr. Matt. Really appreciate it. So my background is in uh, orthopedic physical therapy. Our clinic's been around for about four years. And what we specialize in is treating chronic recurrent low back pain. There's a need in the medical industry for people to actually figure out a solution that lasts people longer than a couple months or a couple years, and actually look to figure out a long-term solution that corrects the root cause of these pain patterns so that these people can actually return to high-functioning lifestyles. And that's what we specialize in. We help people get back to doing the activities they love, such as tennis, such as hiking, such as golf, without worrying that their chronic back pain is going to be coming back. So we've developed a unique process to our, our clinic that is a step-by-step system that takes into account all the uh, all the different research from across different uh, fields and combines it in a way that allows us to, uh, to treat low back pain systematically to where we can actually get good long-lasting results in over 90% of the cases that we see.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. I've known Dr. Tom for uh, several years at this point, and we, we've we really uh, worked together to uh, really combine our knowledge and research in our respective fields to understand the best approach to treating low back pain. And so we've successfully treated a number of people uh, that suffered from low back pain. Adding Dr. Morgan onto our team allows us to expand that even further by being able to address some concerns that I previously wasn't able to do on my end. We'll be diving into that throughout this series, but let's go ahead and start off with some of the common myths or misconceptions that have to do with back pain. And, uh, you know, the three of us being healthcare providers for a few years now, we've seen a number of different things. People come in and we hear different things from, you know, I was told I have sciatica, to the MRI showed that I have a, a disc herniation or a bulging disc, to the chiropractor told me that my pelvis was out of place and that's what the cause was. We're going to be diving into each of these, and we'll go ahead and start with the very first one, which is definitely one of the more common ones that we have, and that's really uh, going into imaging versus symptomatology. MRIs are are a common diagnostic image to get done uh, for people that have low back pain. Uh, What have you seen with regards to MRIs and how that correlates with people's low back pain?
2: That's an excellent... It's actually a soapbox issue of mine, so I'm glad that we are kind of jumping off talking about this. Part of my residency training was actually teaching. And that was one of the things that I always kind of led my students to consider is talk to your patient first, do your thorough physical exam, and then if they have imaging already, look at that next. Don't let imaging guide your exam. Don't let it taint the information that you are getting directly from the patient because that is invaluable. If you take a random sample of MRIs from a group of 60-year-olds, 90% of them are going to have pathology on imaging. Whether or not they have symptoms that correlate with that pathology is completely up in the air. I mean, there's really no good correlation there. So using imaging as a tool in your toolbox and not just the sole thing that you're treating on is really important. I had a patient come in the other day that has chronic low back pain. And on imaging, you know, his discs look terrible. But it does not correlate with the symptoms that he is having another provider may want to go treat that disc. There's a lot of concerns there. It does a very invasive procedure and wouldn't necessarily improve his quality of life or the symptoms that he's having. So, you know, you really have to weigh that and look at what the concern is, what is the least invasive measure that you can take to get them back to full function. Um, and that's really more important to me than treating imaging.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point to make. And then, uh, Dr. Tom, I mean, you you typically have to go the order operations when people come and see you in general is that they have low back pain. If you're the first person they're seeing for it, imaging is something that you're not going to have off the top of your hand because you can't really realistically order it anyway. That allows you and that's helped you develop this really unique skill set and being able to identify low back pain without the need of an image, which can often give a bias towards, you know, to, to a doctor that's viewing the image on what the problem is. And so What have you seen uh, with regards to that? Maybe what are some common patterns that people think it might be a bulging disc or herniation, but in reality, that's not actually the case?
0: Dr. Morgan, you brought up some great points. It's it's really like treating their clinical presentation versus what you're seeing on an image. And um, one of the things that was really pounded into us when I was uh, going to PT school was that you diagnose by exclusion, not by inclusion. And what that means is that you basically prove every condition that it is not and you're left with what condition it is. And all that imaging does or should be used for is to confirm once you've already reached your own medical conclusion of what it actually is. And unfortunately, that is a, a very highly skilled ability to be able to rule everything out. There's a lot of special testing involved. There's a lot that you have to know beyond just you know medicine. It's biomechanics, movement. What does appropriate movement look like? What does appropriate motor pattern coordination look like? Is there a strength issue? Is there Any ligamentous instability, or is there any pathology in the joint? And what you're doing is A, diagnosing the symptom, which is where the pain is coming from. But B, the second part, which is where you get the long term solution for people and actually uh, figure out what's going on, is finding out the root cause. So, all of those things I mentioned motor pattern coordination, ligament instability, misalignment issues, firing pattern issues those are all things that can potentially be contributing to what would eventually become the symptom, which is what you would only be finding by doing the imaging. What needs to be done and what we often see in the clinic is that a lot of people have either, A, relied on imaging, which as, as Dr. Morgan said, there's tons of people without any pathology that have terrible imaging. And on the flip side of that, it drives some people nuts when they have awful pain and there's nothing yeah. on the image and Absolutely. they just want to be told, like, what's wrong with me, right? And they're looking for this image to, to tell them, but it's it's that their symptom has nothing to do with what's actually causing their problem. So mostly what we see and what we do is figure out the root cause, which to us means a movement pattern or a series of, of uh, other other contributing factors, such as the ligaments, the muscles, the soft tissues that surround it, the tendon health, the chronicity of it. And does that mean that there's scar tissue and adipose buildup involved? And, and how do you actually build a treatment plan that accounts for all of that rather
1: than simply the one tissue that's now giving you pain. I think that's really important. Really understanding what those referral patterns are, and if there is imaging, again, does it make sense with the actual presentation of symptoms? And you know, uh, Dr. Morgan, you uh, talked about a patient that you recently had where those that imaging and symptoms didn't match up. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that looks like?
2: Patient came in and had fairly significantly degenerated discs for his age. He was not presenting with discogenic pain. His pain was presenting unilaterally out on the right side. Furthermore, on the imaging, he had disc herniations that were bulging out to the left. And according to the radiologist, you know, impinging on some of those nerve roots as they were exiting, had no left-sided symptoms. So if you were just going in and treating imaging and treating all, you know, left-sided or central tissues, you're not going to resolve that right-sided pain that he's having Um, So you really have to look further into, you know, what the symptoms are. I also like to look at the imaging myself. I love radiologists. They're great. They're, you know, well-trained, but they're looking for different things than I'm looking for. And they've never met the patient. Um, They don't know that it's a right-sided issue. They're looking at slices of film, and that's what they're making comment on. And that's valuable, absolutely. But there's other things that, you know, in my training, I've been tuned into to look for. So yeah, I like to look at imaging myself and kind of go from there as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What are some things that you find that uh, radiologists often, or maybe not miss, but they they don't comment on?
2: A lot of times I have patients come in with set arthropathy and they have significant symptoms due to that, um, where there really isn't a whole lot of comment made on the imaging about that particular joint. Um, it could be, you know, the maybe the radiologist didn't think that that's where their pain was coming from. It also could be that, you know, MRIs are taken in slices. You don't get a continuous look through the tissue. And so if you're only seeing part of a joint and you're not wanting or willing to make a comment on that joint because you can't see the whole thing, it wasn't included in your slice. So, you know, there's a variety of, of things that kind of get missed or overlooked for a variety of reasons.
1: And for said arthropathy being...
2: Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, forget to translate back into English, right? (laughs) So the facets are um, the joints that kind of attach each vertebral level um, to the one above and the one below and allow for a lot of that range of motion that we think of um, in the spine, especially in the low back. So that extension, that side bending, uh, rotating. And arthropathy is kind of a fancy term for arthritis or the breakdown of that joint, degradation of that joint.
1: Um, Dr. Tom, how... How uh, often or how prevalent is it for, in your experience, for people to be, to really be tied to to getting an image or to being stuck on like psychologically on what their image shows?
0: I used to see this a lot more than I currently do. I think that when we perform our analysis, by the time someone's gotten to me, they've either had imaging in the past and they and they have gone down the path of trying to treat the the thing that's causing them pain on the image, and they've. They've been unsuccessful in doing that, um, so they're open to uh, alternative suggestions for their issue. Or you've got people who really, once you explain to them the root cause analysis of, of what you believe is going on, the people that that I've seen more recently with that explanation, they are not as adamant about getting it yeah. if they feel that they have a good idea of what's going on. But I think it's natural for people who are in the position where they've seen maybe one or two or three doctors and nobody's been able to diagnose or tell them why it's happening and what it is to want to take a look inside and and want the imaging so that they can actually put a finger on what's causing them pain.
1: That makes sense. That's kind of been uh, like you said in, in my experience. I think I, I saw it more when I first started practicing, and since then, it's kind of people being tied to it or uh, really wanting it. It's uh, has kind of decreased, especially when you go and, and say what the root cause of it is and how that developed.
0: I think also it's. Uh, People are starting to recognize that imaging is a step towards surgery.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. a little bit. Too. It's used to justify. I mean, that's the whole point of it is to justify
0: uh, surgery. And so, a lot of the people that you or I see, or you know, don't want surgery, and they've already decided that they want to explore the alternative paths.
2: I think it's also a consequence of you know the further you get into practice, the more kind of skilled your physical exam becomes. Yeah. And if you can recreate a patient's pain in office and say, "Yes, that's exactly what I experience." and then you have the ability to explain to them what you just did to cause that, I think the buy-in is a lot higher. True. You mm-hmm. you clearly know what you've done, you know what you're talking about, and most likely have the ability to treat that from there.
1: I agree with that. And that that goes back to, I remember when I was in school, I had a professor say that he said like 85% of you diagnosing the problem is going to be listening to the intake and doing the physical exam. And then the other 15% is you confirming it with an image, but don't, don't ever rely on the image itself just for the reasons that we talked about uh, in this particular part. So summary of imaging, don't always believe it. It's not always hundred percent accurate. There's been hundreds of times where we've actually seen an image and it doesn't correlate with the patient's uh, actual symptoms. I actually had a patient like that today. And so you know, use it as a tool, but don't necessarily rely uh, solely on it itself. The next misconception and, or, or myth that we we want to uh, dive into is the term sciatica and people getting the diagnosis of sciatica. And for me, this is a I kind of equate this particular diagnosis to arthritis and knee pain. Uh, oftentimes, if you go to a doctor. Uh, or a healthcare provider and you're having knee pain, the catch-all phrase that is used is you just have arthritis. And sciatica is a very similar term when you're talking about low back pain. Can one of you all shed some light on what sciatica actually is, what the actual presentation of it looks like, and then we can help kind of differentiate what that typically looks like in, you know, or how that may differentiate from you know something not being sciatica, which is what more, more commonly happens.
2: I guess I'll jump in there. Yeah, Um, jump in the deep
0: end. Let's go.
2: (laughs) So like you said, sciatica has kind of become this catch-all phrase of any time a patient has neurologic-type symptoms down the leg, right? Sciatica is very specific where there's been a tethering of the spinal nerves that contribute to the sciatic nerve that then goes down the back of the leg into the foot. If you don't have a dermatomal radiation pattern down into the foot— um, that's coming from the spinal nerve roots in the back, it's not sciatica. And I've seen a variety of things um, misdiagnosed or labeled as sciatica. Interestingly, very early in my career, I think it was as a third-year medical student, and you might have been supervising me at the time, Dr. Mann, <laughs> um, I had a patient that came in to be seen that had been diagnosed with sciatica, given opiate medications for a number of years. And through a physical exam, we found that he had IT band syndrome.
0: Oh, geez, great! That's and awesome. so we did some trigger point work <laughs>
2: yeah. into his his TFL, and his pain was gone. This man had been managed on opiates for a number of years when he had trigger points in his TFL. That's crazy. Yeah, that's another one of my soapbox issues, and I'm so glad we've yeah. <laughs> hit it right off the bat here.
0: But
1: and what, what about your experience, Doctor Tom?
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you guys have said it. It's it's a catch-all. It's like uh, it's like the the physical medicine equivalent to fibromyalgia. Right back in the back in yeah. the day when it was just like oh I don't know what what uh, what you've got going on we'll just call it this because it's in the general area and you yeah. know um, we can't really give you a specific example. What's helpful for for people to know is that when it comes to the sciatic nerve, it's contributed to by several different nerve roots in the spine, and then there are different places that the nerve can actually become entrapped in the lower leg. So while you may have nerve pain in the lower leg, it's important for your practitioner to be able to identify precisely where that's coming from. Is it coming from a facet issue in your back or is it coming from the piriformis that is overactive? Or in some people, the the sciatic nerve uh, dives right through the piriformis. So overactivity in your piriformis, which might be caused by hip weakness, um, is that what's impinging on the nerve? Establishing whether or not you do actually have a nerve issue would be a good idea because, as Dr. Morgan pointed out, could be a IT band. But beyond that, being able to establish where exactly in the chain that entrapment is occurring because your treatment's going to look different uh, for for each one of those things. A lot of my clients will come to me after they've had injections, epidurals uh, into the back at different nerve root areas to see if that will calm their symptoms. And maybe one time it works, but the second time it doesn't. And the scary thing is that the next recommendation is, well, we should do surgery, right? Or maybe it means that you got lucky the first time and that this, the second time showed you that that's not actually uh, the root cause of the issue. So I think that's, that's the scariest part of the misnomer of sciatica is that it's a catch-all and it's used um, to prevent someone from actually having to figure out the real issue and where that nerve pain is coming from,
1: with regards to the sciatic, or the sciatic nerve, and the term, the diagnosis of sciatica. I think one of the other like big buzzwords uh, when we're talking about sciatic nerve specifically is uh, piriformis syndrome. How how common is that actually, and is that something that you, know, you all have seen in your clinical patients and stuff?
0: So you'd have to remind me exactly the, the clinical presentation of piriformis syndrome, because um, as far as I can remember, it's just like pain deep in the glute. In my practice, we focus more on diagnosing things by what's, what's causing it, and that would be more of the symptom. So in terms of like how common is pain in the glute, pain in the glute can come from facet arthropathies, which uh, Dr. Morgan already talked about. It can also come from sciatic nerve entrapment. It can come from piriformis syndrome, but then you have to start unpacking that. What is piriformis syndrome in the first place? Like everybody's got two piriformises because you have one. Does that make it, right. make it a syndrome? Yeah, for sure. And then like, why is this one behaving differently than the other one? Right. You know, and so these are the questions that you have to answer because, uh, you know, that type of diagnosis is a symptomatic diagnosis that just says has pain in the glute, right? Which tells you nothing right. about
1: why. Yeah, and, and, did that answer your question? Yeah, no, that, that's, great. <laughs> that, that's that's really what I wanted to shed some light on because I I've seen a lot doesn't of doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen a lot of uh, I've seen patients who come in, they thought they had sciatica, they went to someone else before me. That person said, "Well, it's not sciatica; it's piriformis syndrome." And so then they come in to me. Well, I'm still having this piriformis syndrome issue. And it's like, okay, well, what's the cause of the whole thing at the end of the day, right? Like, the I mean, is it in fact that the piriformis is tight enough towards actually pushing on the nerve that, and then, you know, on the static nerve. And that's what's causing the issue in which case, you know, you can go with either one of the previous diagnoses, or is there more to it than that? And so I think shedding some light on that was good. And how about in your, in your case, Dr. Morgan, what, what have you seen with regards to that particular term?
2: You know, I agree with everything you just said, Dr. Tom, you've got to investigate what's causing that piriformis to behave badly. Right. It didn't just wake up one day and decide like I'm on strike. Or whatever. <laughs> so working with physical therapy is really big uh, for me on that particular issue. Um, now I think there's you know some things that you can do to kind of manage symptoms while you get the surrounding musculature back in line or whatever the you know root cause is. but um, definitely working
0: back from there is important. Yeah absolutely I always tell people muscles are not intelligent. they are not proactive. they are reactive. yep they react to a stimulus or something else. They do not wake up and decide to go on strike as you said.
1: I like that. In keeping with muscles, the QL is another buzzword that kind of gets thrown around as a cause of low back pain. So can you talk about what the QL is? How often have you seen it actually be the cause of it? And then why is it tight in particular, which is typically what people state when they when they blame it on the QL?
0: Yeah. So this is, this is the common muscle that gets blamed in the, uh, throwing your back out phenomena, right? Where you just decided one day to throw your back out, picking up a Kleenex or something, even though earlier that day, you may have lifted something really heavy or had a great workout. (laughs) And all of a sudden you bend over to uh, tie your shoes and, and you're floored. The QL gets the blame for this because that is most often the muscle that will, uh, start spasming You've got other muscles in your back that are around the same area that also have the potential to spasm. But what actually happens is that after a first back injury, what the research shows is that the muscles that are typically responsible for stabilizing your spine, these are called your multifidae, they're really close to the spine. They're supposed to activate when you do small things like tying your shoes or picking up a Kleenex from the ground. You don't need your big muscles to do this. So the very first time you ever have any sort of injury, it could be a whiplash injury from a car accident. It could be you just fell really hard and strained your back for a few days. Your body goes into a protective mode where it starts using the QL and it starts using the bigger lumbar paraspinal muscles to perform a splint or a brace so that whatever muscle originally got strained can heal. The problem is that this pattern exists well after the original insult or injury and the reason is because of something called neuroplasticity, where your brain starts to relearn and develop these new patterns. And if that pattern exists for long enough, eventually that pattern becomes stronger than the natural pattern, which should be to use the small muscles to stabilize your spine. So what happens when you throw your back out is you've been going around, your multifidi haven't been active anyway because your body is doing this other pattern, you have a great workout, you're using all the big paraspinal muscles, the QL, during your workout to stabilize. And then you go to do something simple, like pick up the Kleenex or tie your shoe, which your brain doesn't perceive as a heavy task, so the multifidi don't fire, because they haven't been. and The QL and the, all the other lumbar spinal muscles are exhausted because of the workout that you just did, or just because they've been active all day, every day. And all of a sudden you have a destabilizing moment in your spine. Your body freaks out. It clamps down. The big muscles come in. It causes a a sprain of the facet joints in your back as well as potentially muscular strain again as that QL once more never gets a break because now it's on during all your daily activities as well as being called upon to splint for whatever other issue you just caused in your back.
1: So, great explanation. That's
0: it? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was I good. I felt
1: like you got a little there. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. I, 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 the more detail we throw in, the better. Yeah, yeah so, so Q- Q- QL is in, in your, uh, like you said, when when someone, quote unquote, throws her back out, the QL will typically go and cause, uh, or is the one to blame for that. And again, it's really understanding what the cause is of, of why the QL tied in to begin with. Right. You had always told me when we started working together was... Muscle tightness is usually the symptom of a weakness that's going on elsewhere. And so, yeah, I think you did a great job explaining it in that case. Dr. Morgan, when we're looking at muscle tightness as a whole, I know oftentimes, you know, with with our training and injections, I think oftentimes we see providers who will go and uh, inject tight muscles with like a trigger point, different things like that. Because it, it does give some relief to the yeah. patient that's uh, short term. What's the long-term effect at the end of the day? Are we doing more harm than good when we do these injections or someone that does dry needling where they they put a needle into the, or or acupuncture into a, um, into a tight muscle? Like what's what's the the end game of that? And is it doing more harm than good?
2: So that's one of the things I love about the kind of integrative team approach that we take here is that you're not doing one thing in isolation if you're going in and just turning off a muscle that is spasming and not addressing why it was spasming you are doing more long term harm than you are doing good because you're like you're saying re destabilizing that area leading to potentially you know damage at that facet joint or you know further strain of ligaments or any other tissues that weren't properly firing and that caused that initial spasm and lockdown of the QL or paraspinals or whatever has kind of freaked out in that moment. And I think that harkens back to, you know, what we just talked about, that muscles are stupid, right? Like they don't make decisions. (laughs) They just react. Unless you really like take that to heart and make sure that's kind of at the center of how you're treating things, I think you do get lost in in the forest of injections. I mean, we love putting needles and things, right?
1: Yeah. It's a good time. (laughs) Yeah, I love (laughs) injections. But But yeah, you got to be careful about your injections and know why you're doing it at every point. I think one of the other things that typically gets brought up in my experience, and I'm sure you all have had this as well, is the patient that comes in said that they had low back pain, that they've had it for however many years. They've gone to the chiropractor. Chiropractor says their pelvis is out of place. And so then they go and do a bunch of treatments on it, put the pelvis back in place it, you know, holds temporarily. They're back the following week. Um, the pain's gone for, you know, a day or two after the adjustment, and it comes back. Why does it keep coming back? I'll take a stab at this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what I, what I always
0: tell people is there, are, there are three things that hold your skeletal system in place. One is bony congruency, the way that your bones naturally fit together. The second thing is the ligaments. And the third thing is the muscles. If any one of those things is compromised, then the others have to either overcompensate for it or simply the job can't be done. So in the case of pelvises that continually come out of alignment, in my field, we're looking at the muscular sequencing because if QL is tonically overactive, it's going to be constantly pulling up on the ilium, which can actually cause on the pelvis, which can cause that rotation to come back over time. Typically in my practice, if we correct someone's pelvis, we're doing exercises to reestablish those patterns to get the muscles to fire in the correct order so that they're not pulling it out of alignment. And then when you get to the situation where that's been working well for someone, but then they, they up their game. And this happened a couple months ago in in a client that we both see that um, went out and started playing tennis really vigorously after she hadn't been able to do that for, for 10 years, but she felt so good that she, she did it. And she had a little recurrence of, of her, uh, her back pain. And the conclusion that we come to at that point is, well, the muscles are firing very well. There's been no changes in your bony congruency. The ligaments must be compromised, right? And, and that's where you guys all come in is if we have a muscle, for example, that uh, the multifidi that has been so atrophied by the time that we start to rehabilitate someone that they can't get the right firing patterns down and they can't stabilize their spine. We need things like platelet-poor plasma to be able to heal that multifidus so that we can reestablish that connection. And if that's not the case, if there's ligamentous laxity because of how long this person's pelvis has been out of alignment or other issues that might contribute to that ligamentous laxity, where can we do some prolotherapy or or other things that you guys have under your belt to to stabilize that? So I think that the answer lies within you have those three systems that are supposed to keep everything where it belongs it's a differential diagnosis process to figure out which one is the causative factor for why it keeps, keeps coming out, but you can't just keep putting it back and hoping it stays. Right. You know, (laughs) Isn't
2: that the definition of insanity? (laughs) Doing The same same thing over over and over and over
1: again. Yep. When we're looking at the the pelvis coming out. So we talked about bony congruency, ligament laxity, and then I'm assuming muscular strength has to, you know, also has to be in play uh, or what, what muscles are typically weak that can cause that hip to constantly come out.
0: Yeah. Well, so initially it starts off not necessarily as weakness, but as just the muscles inability to contract due to poor neuromuscular patterns. So that pattern that we talked about earlier, where the brain learns a new pattern so strongly that it starts overlaying that instead of using your good patterns, you actually have to focus the initial part of your treatment on neuromuscular reeducation, which is helping the body to activate muscles. So it's not a it's not a true strength issue. You'll get a large increase in strength immediately during the neuromuscular reeducation phase because simply you're teaching the brain how to use the muscles correctly. But then once that has occurred, depending on how long that atrophy or that disuse has taken place, then you begin a more actual rehabilitative process in terms of like strength training. And in cases like that, you're looking at the the multifidae and you're looking at the deep hip muscles, the gemelli, the Uh, obturator internus and externus where a lot of people will uh, fall short on this is a lot of PTs will focus on tiny little bands or tiny little weights or table exercises for way too long and forget that even these little muscles actually have to go through what's called progressive resistance training, where you increase intensity, you increase load, you increase the dynamicness of the movement and you make it progressively harder so that these changes actually can last.
1: When we're looking at um, in In addition to those the muscles that you named, uh, I think one of the things that I've seen a lot of is where we have issues or uh, pe- people are told you just need to work out your core. can you talk a little bit about what the core is, how much does that impact everything, uh, and how often have you seen it be a factor in issues with low back pain?
0: The issue with that general statement is uh, is about. The, the, well, it's about the generalness of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <It's about laughs> the, that the core is this, it's a complex system. When people think of the core, they may be thinking of the rectus abdominis or the abs, like the six pack abs or the obliques. And so what'll happen is a lot of the time, the PTs or, or trainers or whoever's administering the exercise will give global core exercises. So like planks and bird dogs and side planks and, and, uh, rotation drills and these are all well and good, but the issue is that the deep muscles, um, which my definition of the core is a little bit different. It's the multifidi, the pelvic floor, the diaphragm, and the transverse abdominus. Those are the things that surround your organ system, your thoracic cavity. Those are the things that should be active in um, anticipatory stabilization, which is what uh, we talked about earlier with having that base stability before your body has to do anything to move when you go straight towards these larger exercises that require more of these muscles to be recruited, the issue is that you're going to continue using core patterns because you're doing exercises that are at a level above what is currently possible for the muscles that have been disused and atrophied. When you're first starting out, you're not doing these global core exercises. You're doing very specific exercises to the muscle groups that in a way, in positions that decrease the likelihood that you're going to be activating these other large muscle groups to give those a fighting chance to actually start working. And then you can get into, you know, a couple months down the road is these more global exercises. But the small ones, they need to catch up first.
1: Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I mean, that's clinically what we've seen in the people that we've uh, co-managed or co-treated is addressing, you know, multifodized is a huge one. We talked about that you know atrophy uh to some degree where it starts to lose its you know mass essentially or its muscle fibers and so we can go and treat that uh with a number of different things the last misconception that I
2: actually wanted to jump in one extra thing there um there's a patient population where that what you brought up is like really specifically overlooked and undertreated and that's women that have given birth
0: Oh my God. Yeah, this one drives me nuts. The Can I trauma? go after her? Yeah. The, <laughs> trauma that
2: the pelvic floor goes through with natural birth. Uh-huh. And then, if you um, have a cesarean section, there's a whole other level of trauma um, to that core, what actually truly makes up the core. And we've kind of normalized the issues that arise from that without giving people solutions or avenues to pursue. One of my best friends is a practicing OBGYN and she prescribes pelvic floor therapy to every woman that she delivers for, which is great. But unfortunately it's not the norm. And so you have women walking around who, you know, have had one or multiple births and they've been told that it's normal to pee a little bit when you laugh. Uh Like that's not normal. It's It's common, absolutely common, but don't confuse the words common and normal. So that's, a little, little niche yeah. and something's near and dear to my heart, as you know, like that. I think really a lot of times is underserved as a population. So, mm-hmm.
0: well, and, I mean, these women they still have the the hormones that increase their ligamentous laxity, regardless of whether they had a cesarean section or not. Absolutely, which increases the play in the pelvis, which gives it a chance to go out of alignment. And then, if we're going to talk about cesareans, you, there's no way you're using your abs the couple days following. You know your cesarean section. You're using your arms <laughs> to push yourself up, right? Otherwise, you're afraid your from guts will fall. Can personal experience.
2: Out, right? like, yeah, no, you're not using. Yeah. <laughs> you are not using
0: those muscles. And in that period of time, you for, you forget how, or your body yeah. forgets how, and and unless you make a conscious effort to reset those patterns, um, that's yeah, it's absolutely right. They're just going to be hardened.
1: Yeah. So just a shameless plug on it. If you want to learn more about both the pelvic floor and uh cesarean section, we did, uh, two separate episodes on these with Dr. Jesse, who is uh Dr. Tom's partner. And then Ashley Allen, who is a fitness trainer, uh, that specializes in working with women, uh, pre and uh, postnatal.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but I just, I just want to talk a little bit more about that because it's yeah. so, uh, J- Jesse does a great job in that podcast. It's, um, what you mentioned, Dr. Morgan, with the the ping when you sneeze and like there are women that are in their fifties and sixties, and they've just Mm -hmm. been operating like this. We had one that um, was a CrossFitter. She was 50 years old and she'd been, they have a name for it. It's called peasing, Mm -hmm. right? So they're ping when they sneeze or laugh. And then with double unders, she couldn't do a double under because of the issue. And the approach that we're talking about with restoring the muscular firing patterns, we're able to correct that in an alternative way Because a lot of women um, will not want to go to a pelvic floor physical therapist just because of the uncomfortableness of the internal digital exam and digital therapy.
1: And with this approach, we can actually restore that without any of that. So the last misconception I'd like to dive into is someone has a, and this kind of goes back to the very first thing we talked about, imaging versus symptomatology. Someone has a bulging disc or they have a disc herniation or something you know, on their MRI that, that they automatically think, okay, this is not going to get better unless we do surgery and y'all's experience. How often is that actually the case? Um, when is someone then, you know, not going to like for sure hundred percent, but when is someone more likely to be a surgical candidate versus not and how well does surgery work? when We're looking at low back pain. And know low back pain is a general thing to say. Uh, but <laughs> you know, um, when we're looking at different conditions within the low back pain,
2: The published data on surgical outcomes for low back pain is 50%.
1: That's fantastic.
2: You're going through an invasive surgery, which always carries risks. Anytime you go under anesthesia, anytime you cut someone open, there's a lot of risk involved in that, right? Especially around the spine because of the just huge number of nerves that you have going on there. I know if I brought a 50% home on a, I well, I've never done that because, you know, that's not the kind of student I was, but <laughs> if you brought a 50% home, like that's way beyond failing. Yeah. That's not even close to, to passing. And so I think it's, it's really sad that patients are kind of led down a path where they're told that that's really their only option. Forgot the first part of the question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and that 50%, the success rate might not be what's successful to the patient. Yeah,
2: no, that's yeah. that's a really good point, is kind of how we measure success versus, you know, how that particular study might have been measuring success. I know in our practice, and I'm sure in your practice too, it's getting patients back to doing what they love to do. If your definition of success is that they're no longer in pain, but, oh, by the way, you can no longer, you know, pick up your grandkids because that's dangerous for you. Or you can no longer play tennis or pickleball, which is, you know, a new yeah. wave uh, that's come out recently. Everyone's playing yeah. pickleball. But if that's something you love to do, if my treatment plan includes like, oh, you can no longer do that in your life, that's a failure yeah. um, to me.
1: Yeah. So how about in your experience with uh, regards to when have you seen someone, you know, let, let's, let's start with the positive aspect of it first, where when have we seen someone who was given a diagnosis, told they need surgery, and you know how how often have you actually seen that surgery have to actually happen twice yeah, yeah.
0: twice in in uh, hundreds, almost thousands of patients you know it's not super common, especially when you're looking at like active individuals yeah right like and it's it's not that's it's a great not, distinction
1: to make too yeah
0: right it's it's the last thing right. that an active individual should should ever consider with the right treatment, which starts with the right diagnosis, which You know, and then everything else that we've talked about here today, um, it's very rarely uh, the solution.
1: In the two cases that you saw, which, what were the outcomes for good?
0: The concerns were spondylolis thesis grade like two to three, to where this person had bilateral uh, leg weakness and nerve pain. But even in that case, we did prehabilitation with this individual and a recovery that normally takes nine months. She was golfing. Biking, jogging within three. There are cases that absolutely need it, yeah. But they are far fewer cases than actually get recommended it. But the, the disappointing thing is that there's also not a plethora, right, an abundance of good care available. So a lot of the clients that we see, they've been to six or seven other physical therapists right. before us, right? You know, and it's uh, you know, you tell me that you have a hard time getting them to come sometimes because they, they've tried it, yeah, right. So, someone who's in that situation where they've tried physical therapy eight times, they've done this, they've done that, they've done the other. It's very easy to see that that might be true that that's the only outcome that they perceive
1: is available to them. And then um, going back, so I mean, you, with with your unique training, uh, Doctor Morgan, where you know, you, you're seeing, you're doing injections under uh, you know fluoroscopy, uh, different things like that. So you're, you're seeing pretty intense conditions, I would imagine as well. Your training I don't I don't know how many people were actually uh, like active versus people who are more sedentary lifestyles. I'm not sure like the, the patient population that you saw, but how, how often was surgery actually indicated in in your experience during your training?
2: I referred one patient for a surgical referral and it was because of her age and some other kind of red flag concerns that we had. And mm-hmm. she was not a surgical candidate. But beyond that, I mean I, I've in my training because of the I was working within a Medicare type model. Right. Um, the patient population that I was seeing at that time was a lot different—not as active, more sedentary. Even in that population, there's a lot of things that you can do conservatively to manage back pain um, and to address back pain without you know going that more invasive um, surgical route.
1: And so, it, it definitely is possible with the techniques that we have and, and that we utilize uh, to actually go and resolve. Back pain as a whole, as we've seen in our you know, respective clinics, but again, it all really comes down to understanding what the cause is and uh, of, of the back pain itself, and not just being focused on oh it has to like you know being focused on the image of, of what the image shows, being focused on a given diagnosis, but really understanding all the preceding factors that got us to that point, and really just working backwards and addressing it all right. And uh, it's something that we that we say here in our office all the time, you know, we can do these injections and will they help? Yes. But if we don't do, if we don't go back to treat the preceding factors that led you to this, it's going to come back over time. And so that's where the the complete approach uh, utilizing your services as well. Dr. Tom uh, really comes into play to really work backwards and figure out everything that's going on uh, with regards to addressing low back pain. Is there anything else that y'all would like to add for this particular episode? Any other misconceptions that uh, you thought of before we wrap it up?
0: No, I think, uh, I think we covered a lot of it. Uh, I think the one thing that we might've mentioned, touched on earlier is that, um, a lot of people focus on when they're talking about back pain, they're just looking at the back, but it's also what's going on at the hips, right. Even down to what's happening at the feet, right. And how, how the feet are loading and responding to, to load. Uh, that would be the only other thing that I have is that oftentimes in like, let's say you get a referral to a physical therapist from your, your doctor and, and you're using your insurance to go to that physical therapist. If the referral says back pain, that physical therapist will not get reimbursed for if they start working on your foot, yeah. right? Because of how your, <laughs> yeah. how your foot interacts with your knee and up to the hip and to the back. So, uh, there is a little bit of a, um, they even have to write the note a specific way, which is more paperwork and more tedious. But oftentimes, like a lot of the a lot of the trouble that we're in is because we have started viewing conditions through a microscope instead of looking at the the human.
2: Yeah. I think you bring up two really good points there. One, you know, making sure that you're working with a provider that really understands the kinetic chains in the body is super important. And then two, kind of insurance has its place and the treatments that are available within that model definitely have their place but mm-hmm. you have to recognize that providers are limited by time a lot of times yes. in that model and the ability to do a thorough physical exam in the 5 to 10 minutes that they may be able to see you within that particular model isn't necessarily realistic so a lot of times coming to you know a cash based practice where that provider spending an hour with you, you know, evaluating actually what's going on, looking thoroughly at that kinetic chain, working with a team can be really beneficial. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's the value of focus, right? So even your provider gets better and better at their job when they're able to spend one hour with every single patient and think about it and ruminate over the case a little bit more. That provider becomes more effective in the long run, too, versus the one that's seeing people for 10, 15 minutes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. 100% we'll go ahead and wrap this episode up in our next coming episodes for this particular series. We're going to be taking a deeper dive into explaining the cause of a number of conditions relating to low back pain. So we'll be breaking down sciatica, bulging discs, different things like that, SI joint dysfunction, and really helping you identify uh, what the difference is between those and how they become to become an issue and kind of working backwards from there. Dr. Tom, Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks
0: for having me. Thank you.
1: And we'll catch you on the next episode.